And happy Saturday! Hey, this is a special weekend edition of Offbeat Oregon History. We are toiling away eight days a week this week to bring you parts two and three of our new five-part series on the 1980s Rajneeshpuram story out of Wasco County. So this is part two. Look for part three tomorrow, and parts four and five will be lumped together into a single take and dropped on Monday. Thanks for downloading. I do hope you enjoy the show. This story was first published on August 1st of 2023 under the headline, Rajneeshis Got On Well With Neighbors At First. And like I said, it is part two of this five-part story on Rajneesh Puram, the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, and the woman I like to think of as the Bhagwan's Rasputin, Ma'anand Sheila, who we are going to meet in today's episode. So let's get to it. Here we go. Part 2. Arrival On June 1, 1981, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh boarded a Boeing 747 for a flight from Mumbai to New York City. Officially, the trip was for medical treatment, and authorities were told he'd be heading back home to India afterward, but Rajneesh was not planning on returning. His movement, which had already become an international octopus with meditation centers in dozens of different countries around the world, had outgrown the Pune campus. He needed a new world headquarters. And his personal secretary, his new personal secretary, I should add, Ma'anand Sheila, formerly known as Sheila Patel Silverman, had found one for him. Sheila closed the deal for the property then known as the Big Muddy Ranch the following month paying $5.75 million for it. It was 64,229 acres of central Oregon rangeland with only the amenities one would expect a family ranch to have. And in late August, Sheila chartered a Learjet to fly the guru into sea for the first time the dry landscape that was to be his new home. It was a bit of a shock for Rajneesh, who had loved the lush greenery and tree-screened privacy of the Pune Ashram. Where are the trees? he asked with obvious disappointment, but he soon got over it and settled in. Sheila launched a charm offensive of sorts among the neighbors. People who remember this time in Oregon will be will have just burst out laughing at the mentioning of Sheila and a charm offensive, but remember when she first got there, she did try to get in good with some of the locals. They hosted a party or two at which local cowboys were invited and came in and whooped it up, and soon Central Oregon was feeling pretty sanguine about its new far-out neighbors, and in early November of 1981, when the Rajneeshis applied to the Wasco County Board of Commissioners for permission to incorporate a city on the Big Muddy, they got an easy, informal, country-style yes, and the city of Rajneesh Puram was born. It's really important to stress at this point, before we get into the ugly stuff, that the sannyasins at Rajneeshpuram were not all rich libertines in red robes punching each other in encounter group. In fact, very few of those actually were there. Strange and morally unmoored as Rajneesh's teachings would seem, they sounded logical and they sounded logical and innovative and sensible to a certain kind of spiritual seeker. One could place one's faith in that hypnotic man and under his guidance transcend the individuality that so much of life's pain is anchored to. 
no guilt for past offenses, no sorrow for lost relationships, no shame for the judgments of society, just being in the moment and striving towards enlightenment. What was not to like? Worldwide, thousands had joined, and the vast majority of them were sincere, sensitive people, and they were also, as noted earlier, disproportionately young people. You should see the photograph on the webpage for this story. There is a picture of the first ranch crew on the land relaxing after a hard day of working to build Rajneesh Puram in 1981. All these glowing, smiling, happy young faces holding up bottles of beer and just, you can really see that was kind of the essence of what this group of people were. Not only that, but the sannyasins of Rajneeshpuram were acutely aware that they had the chance to make a new world for themselves and their children. Rajneesh referred to work as worship, and while that might sound like a cheap newspeak way to get free labor out of quote-unquote worshippers, for them it was a meaningful distinction. Especially early on, Rajneeshis at the ranch worshipped all day with shovels and hammers and joy. Many of them, recall, literally leaping out of bed and running to the workplace every morning. The work pace is totally slow, wrote a sannyasin named Michael in a letter home to New Zealand published in a Rajneeshi newsletter. From dawn till dusk, with about 150 of us working heavy machinery, laying foundations for the new Mariam Canteen, warehouse, Bhagwan's garage, school, office block, health center, and so on, forming the land and setting up the irrigation, putting up about 50 homes, each with space for about 14 people, gardening, cooking, and on and on through each hot and dusty day, till that cool shower in the queue by the keg of beer at sunset. When the story of Rajneesh Puram is told, this is the perspective that's most often overlooked. Rajneesh catered carefully to rich people, and plenty of his followers were loaded with dough. But not all of them were, and the core of the experience, once you got past Sheila's avaricious crew, was not about money or sexual freedom or shaking down the marks. It was about creating a new community centered on freedom from what you might call the tyranny of self. Arguably, it was a beautiful dream. But like a lot of utopian projects over the years, it was about to get hijacked by people who could see its potential as a personal power base. The locals started getting to know their new far-out neighbors a little, and at first it went pretty well. The Rajneeshis provided plenty of fodder for conversation at cafes and taverns in places like Madras and Redmond. In particular, the contrast between the anti-materialistic rhetoric and Rajneesh's vast and growing collection of Rolls-Royce cars, which eventually numbered 94, raised some eyebrows. And the exclusive choice of red clothing made them instantly recognizable and a little funny-looking on the streets. There may have been the occasional rumor of violence or sex in an encounter therapy session, as in the Pune ashram, but if so, they didn't get much traction. And anyway, most Eastern Oregonians are strongly inclined to mind their own business. In Pune, Rajneesh had become known as the sex guru. In Oregon, he quickly became known as the Rolls-Royce guru. People often saw him driving around in one of his big luxury barges. He wasn't a very good driver, but he was a fast one, and he did occasionally get into crashes. Drivers who waved at them as they drove by got treated to the alarming sight of him taking both hands off the wheel and both eyes off the road to do a full namaste salute back as his three tons of English steel careened past it well above safe highway speed. Few locals waved at him twice, even if they wanted to. And at first, that was as bad as it got. All seemed to be going smoothly. 
But trouble was already on the horizon for the commune, and it wouldn't take long to arrive right at their door. The first big problem was centered around a mistake that Sheila made before buying the Big Muddy. She hadn't done any research onto Oregon's land use laws. These, as it turned out, were some of the most restrictive in the nation, and they were aimed at preventing exactly the kind of thing the Bogwan's crew had in mind, the conversion of farmland into new urban and suburban spaces. And Sheila's charm offensive hadn't won over some of the locals. A month after Rajneesh Puram was incorporated, three nearby ranch families got together with a land-use watchdog group, 1,000 Friends of Oregon, and filed an appeal with the Land Use Board of Appeals seeking to invalidate the county's decision to allow the city's incorporation on, on land-use basis. Naturally, this played poorly with Sheila and Rajneesh. A clumsy attempt to bribe a thousand friends made things worse, and from this point on, the commune was more or less in a cold war with the rest of Oregon. Well, while the appeals courts kicked this case up and down the line from local courts to the state Supreme Court and back down, development continued at Rajneeshpuram. The city issued hundreds of building permits and dozens of business licenses. It established a police force. It installed utilities for water and sewer service. There was a big old dam built for water supply. They were moving ahead with things. The land use challenge was bad enough for the commune, but it was probably survivable. Then, as now, it is very hard to make a case that running cattle at, you know, one head per 40 acres or whatever it is out there is a higher and better use of the land than a self-sufficient, semi-urban community surrounded by an organic farming operation. If land use had been the only issue, the parties would probably have come to some kind of an agreement that let Rajneesh Puram continue in exchange for some mitigation work and common-sense restrictions on zoning and land use. What really became a problem, though... And what made such an agreement impossible for the state or 1,000 friends to consider was the pattern of dishonesty that quickly became apparent among the leaders at Rajneesh Puram. Put simply, the top sannyasins considered state and federal laws to lack any legitimate authority over them. They were kind of like proto-sovereign citizens or something. In any case, every time a law conflicted with what the Rajneeshi leaders wanted to do, and by Rajneeshi leaders, I basically mean Sheila and her top lieutenants, the choice that they made was whether to pretend to obey the law or to defy it openly. Following the law in good faith seemed to be strictly optional. Throughout the time the Rajneeshis were in Oregon, the law would be used a lot as a weapon against those who felt themselves to be bound by it. But the commune's leaders never for a moment seemed to consider it legitimate. And that became very obvious very quickly as non-Saniasin Oregonians started interacting with the group. There was also a clear sense of contempt, a sense that the commune's authorities, and especially Sheila, considered non-Saniasin Oregonians to be categorically a bunch of ignorant, small-minded hicks who should be easy to manipulate or dupe. This came through loud and clear in media appearances and interviews, and it started to change the perception of the commune from harmless weirdos to offensive and probably crazy weirdos. Before long, a thousand friends started discovering that its land-use fight with Rajneeshpuram was solid fundraising gold. Donations poured in, and this, of course, reinforced the battle lines even more. The situation became even worse a year or so later when the Rajneeshis started getting seriously into militarization theater, posing ostentatiously with what looked like assault rifles and submachine guns at festivals and appearances around the ranch. They hoped that this show of force would encourage hostile locals to back off, 
Instead, coming less than a decade after the disaster at Jonestown in Guyana, most locals looked at all the gun brandishing and thought, these people are not only crazy, they're also dangerous. The next serious source of trouble came when Oregon Attorney General Dave Fronmeyer noticed that the city of Rajneeshpuram was un- operating under something similar to Sharia law. The government of the town was the religion of the town. So, in late 1983, Fronmeyer sued to get Rajneeshpuram's incorporation overturned on separation of church and state grounds. Meanwhile, Ma'anand Sheila was talking to the media every chance she got, and never once did that make the situation better. Oregonians were starting to get very used to seeing her on TV, categorizing them all as ignorant bigots and, and worse. By the end of 1983 or so, the Rajneeshis could see that there was a real possibility that they would lose the fight to keep Rajneeshpuram incorporated as a city. Also, because the state of Oregon considered Rajneeshpuram, the city, to be illegitimate, the FBI had cut off the Rajneeshpuram Peace Force's access to the National Crime Information System database a database which Sheila's crew had found super useful for digging up dirt on political enemies, among other things. So the Rajneeshis decided to take over a town that was already incorporated as a sort of a backup thing. They could transfer their energies over to that so that if Rajneesh Puram were forcibly disincorporated, they wouldn't be dead in the water. So their eyes turned, naturally, to the closest town to their ranch. That would be Antelope, population 43. And in the next episode, we'll talk about what happened when they made that move. Key sources in this story included, as I said, works by Eric Kane, Nadine Jelsing, Corey Fry, and of course, Les Zeitz. And that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening, and I do hope you enjoyed it. Uh, This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. Check out our hub page at offbeatoregon.com to explore all the other things we do or to find the full citations and visuals that go with today's show. You should definitely dig into some of the other stuff on this as well. Les Zeitz's 16-part or 20-part initial series and 5-part follow-up series is really eye-opening. Corey Fries is also particularly awesome, although you do have to pay for access to um, the Corvallis Gazette Times archive to get that one. But if you're pressed for time, I strongly, strongly recommend the Oregon Experience episode produced by Eric Kane and Nadine Jelsing, which came out on November 19th of 2012 by Oregon Public Broadcasting. It's titled Beyond the Ranch, Rajneesh Revisited, and it is really well done very fair-minded, which is actually kind of hard to find in Oregon because the cultural impact of this group was overwhelmingly negative to everyone who wasn't a part of it. It is very easy to find attack pieces that go after them with both barrels. It's kind of like Scientology that way. Very polarizing. Anyway, this podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license, so you can find details of that at offbeatoregon.com cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Gee, I hope that link is still live. I'm going to have to go and check it out sometime. It's been a hot minute. Anyway, Offbeat Oregon History episodes come out once per weekday, except for this week in which they come out all eight days of the week. Gosh, that's the second Beatles reference I've made in like a day. That's, I probably need to check my temperature. Anyway... (laughs) 
Uh, it won't be long before the next episode is up on your device and ready for you to queue up. If I'm doing my job, that will be Sunday morning for part three of this series. So until then, go out and fill up the rest of your day with good stuff. Bye now. Thank you.